It's timely. It's insightful. It's motivating. It's empowering. It's time with Fred, your inspirational broadcast with host Fred Gaddy. Good evening to our listeners and a very warm welcome to another edition of Time with Fred. I, I call this the home edition uh, because this is coming to you live from the comfort of my home, just in case you've not uh, noticed. And I have with me tonight a very special guest who is no stranger to this program. Um, Alvin Law, those who watched uh, this broadcast or listened to this broadcast two weeks ago, I am pleased and honored to have with me in living color, Alvin Law, uh, all the way from Calgary, Canada. And I'm going to pass it on to Alvin. I'm going to have him introduce himself. And I tell you what, you're in for a real treat because this time you're, you're seeing Alvin and you get a see put a name to the face right like you didn't do the last time so mr alvin law thank you so much for joining us for this special edition of time with fred it's my pleasure and if you'll indulge me for a minute fred because we're becoming good friends i want to do my radio voice so it's really good to be here on fred's show live with what was it called living with fred time with fred time with fred i forgot for just a second there i was just fascinated by the voice you had introducing you from the radio station uh you know what man that's how it started for me you know and, and i think what's fascinating about this and we'll talk some more about this is for those that did not listen to the last broadcast but more importantly for those that did we made an observation that i used to joke about the fact that i had a face for radio and uh and it's what you know that's an old bad joke but the reality is i went into radio in 1980 as a as a broadcaster for an fm radio station and i swear to you i sounded like this that was my voice on the air it was fm and it was called the rock and the i rock. played rock <laughs> fm vinyl and i edited audio tape with my toes and a razor blade now why i mention that is for the people that have not seen me i also happen to have no arms that was essentially why we decided to do a visual interview because as much as i'm not trying to make an uncomfortable or inappropriate deal about having no arms seeing it changes the way that we perceive it and i actually that was one of the greatest learning curves of my life fred was you know as a backstory uh one more time i was born this way in 1960 i was a what they called a victim of thalidomide, which was a morning sickness medication. It was very, very well known in the early 1960s around the planet. Over 20,000 babies were born deformed. If I had a dollar for every time I've used that paragraph, I wouldn't have to have a job, Fred, because it is not something that I am so accustomed to saying because I've got nothing else to talk about. Mm -hmm. But absolutely, I believe that my birth, the circumstances of having no arms, was going to have a profound impact clearly on the rest of my life. But I want to extend that to the idea that our birth of everybody has a profound impact on their life. Now, I know that might sound to some people watching or listening going, well, duh. No, honestly, I have a, a thing I want to talk about just for a second, and I'm going to throw a funny line at you, Fred. Sure. What are the two most impactive words in human language? Can you guess? No, I cannot. And I'm not going to try to make a fool of myself. With All right, I'll let you off the hook. I believe they are. Ready? Yeah. I'm pregnant. I am pregnant? Usually it's the woman saying it, 
And those two words change the lives of every single living being. Hmm. They change their lives because they become parents. They change their lives because the children now have a parent or parents. It changes everything about who we become. Not to get too philosophical right off the start here, but that is the essence of my story, Fred. I've got the experience to know that being given up for adoption at five days of age and being homeless gave me a remarkable opportunity to witness what life became because I lived with people who totally embraced my existence. The thalidomide babies, as we were called, were not embraced by the world. We were seen as a mistake. So that is why when it comes to our discussions, no matter whether I'm with you, Fred, or in any other broadcast or podcast or in my book, it's all about what I want to encourage the audience to understand how a life without arms could be relatable to any of your audience listening or watching this right now. Because some people would say, well, I can't relate to that. That would be, with due respect, like me trying to relate to you being black. Mm -hmm. We can make a big deal out of that. Yeah. But I tend to go more to the direction of the fact that our exterior does not define us. Our character defines us. Our reputations define us. And I think those are all the product of how we utilize our attitude. That's another predictable one, isn't it? And my foster parents who adopted me when they were 55 and 53 years old and I was two weeks old have the kind of attitude that is very difficult to put into words. So that's what I... That's, that's kind of where my beginning starts and the background of my life. And, and I, I must say, uh, Alvin, that it, it takes, it takes, it should take, uh, I, I'd imagine that it takes some, some amount of boldness, right, to, to show who you are, right, to the world, because there is this expectation of what perfection should be. But the fact that you're, you're, you're out there, whether it's on the stage or whether, you know, you're speaking to hundreds of thousands of people at once and showing who you are, I, I think, uh, is, is a vulnerability. Again, that, that I must say I admire a lot. But going, touching back, and you know, we're going to be talking about your book. Um, there it is. Cause of Life, which, great read, by the way, I should say. But you, you reveal certain powerful concepts. And I mean, I'm reading this book. And, and one that I want to I ask you about, you, you talked about when, when, you were, when you were born, right? Your, your, your grandma. Um, being an, a, an Orthodox Catholic, um, made a comment. She, she viewed your deformities as a message from the devil and bringing you home would curse the family, their land, and perhaps most importantly, her. How did you relate to this coming from your own grandma? I mean, you, you capture this in your own words, but I, how, how did you feel, you know, writing these own words that came from, from your own grandmother about you? Well, that's a great way to start uh, with this, Fred. And, and let me give a, a very short backstory. I did not ever meet that woman who would be otherwise known as my maternal or paternal grandmother. In this case, it was my birth father's mother. I did not meet my birth family till I was 23 years old. Um, I did never meet my birth father who passed away in 1983 and this is rather stark. He passed away due to alcoholism. And the alcoholism was largely blamed on the depression that he felt in having his mother tell his family, including his wife, my birth mother, that she would not allow me to come home to the farm. Wow. They lived on a farm in rural Saskatchewan, Canada. It was her farm. 
and it's a bit harsh because it comes across as being disrespectful of people that might have a faith or a belief in religion. Let's be very clear, this was an extreme belief. This was not a mainstream belief, but it was also a belief of the time. That's why I like to say that we've come so far. I did not find out that story even at the first meeting that I had with my birth family. I met my birth family for a very simple reason, and that was because my wife Darlene, we will be having our 27th anniversary in July, was very, very blunt with me, saying I was actually being very disrespectful in never wanting to find what many would call in our society my real family. If I may say this, one of my Alvin Law quotes is it takes more than giving birth to earn the title mom. Yes. I really believe that and no disrespect to the birth of a child in natural ways and the mother themselves. I'm just saying that I had two mothers in a sense. I had a mother who raised me in a foster home, but it wasn't called a foster home. And then I got to meet the woman that gave birth to me, that carried me in her body, that took those pills. And I didn't care about meeting her. That's not meant to sound mean. I just didn't care. Why would I care? I had a great life. I had nothing to be curious about. I'm one of those believers in nurture over nature. But it was my wife, Darlene, that reminded me, Alvin, this is not about you, dear. One of the great lessons of my life. You need to meet this woman to give her any sense of peace that may be left in her life at her age so she can go on, and especially your siblings, because I would have an, a brother and a sister. But I found out, I think it was the third visit that we had with them in 1993, this very in fact, powerful story. Uh, I remember my birth mother crying when she told the story. I remember her saying, I wish I would have stood up to her. But this goes to show you how deep that sense was in 1960 yes. of the birth of a child without arms and the connection that some people made with the devil. And, you know, obviously I'm even uncomfortable talking about it this day, but not uncomfortable because it bothers me. Uncomfortable because I don't mean any offense. But that was the essence of what made my life change. One could argue, and my parents who adopted me said this, that was actually God's response to the comment about the devil. Fine, mm -hmm. if you want to believe this child is cursed, I'm going to give him a couple of parents that are like a gift from up above. Yes. And that's what my parents called me. Can you imagine living in a home where you were honored every day for being alive, even without arms? Mm -hmm. How could I possibly not grow up? to be the person that I am today. And I have such empathy, Fred, for people that don't have that good fortune. Yes. And we all know people like that, grew up in a home that was, we call it dysfunctional, or maybe in a single parent home, or any of those things that didn't go well. I have complete empathy for people. But Fred, I don't have sympathy. Mm. There is a difference in the two words. Yes. No question about it. And I'm just so blessed. And I mean that without being religious to have had the life I've had because my family didn't see me as a curse of the devil. And I think this is a very powerful perspective, Alvin. I think we touched that on, uh, on the previous show that, I mean, not, not, not even in terms of having or, or having a child who, you know, is deformed, so to speak, but even looking at life, right? Oftentimes we see, you know, the, the external things and we're, we're, we discount them, right? Because they don't fit into the kind of mold that we expect them to be, right? They don't look like what they, we feel they should look like or they don't feel like what we feel they should feel like. But you, you, there, there, is, a, there is a statement here that your, your birth father 
died in the early 1980s in part because of how much you're being given up weight on his mind. So this tells me that even though he did that, it must have been something he did reluctantly, right? He didn't want to, but he was pressured. I mean, would that be an accurate statement? Not only was he pressured, but I also believe whenever I talk about this, the essence of 1960 comes up a great deal. Uh, why I bring that up is because it's very important to understand the vision of me was even more imperfect in 1960. In 2020, we have come to an agreement as a culture that people should be allowed to live their lives the way that they choose. We are still, however, Fred, struggling with the body perfect. You know, I have to tell you this. This is, I hope this isn't inappropriate, but it, it's in my head. I want to get it out of my head so that I can share it with your audience. And again, right. no offense. Right. But I happened to be watching a little TV today. I was doing some writing. I've been always the kind of person that likes to either have music in the background or my television on when I'm working, but I refuse to watch the news. So believe it or not, I was watching a rerun of I Dream of Jeannie. Did, you're probably not even old enough to remember that show, right? I Dream I, of Jeannie? I don't know. No. I okay, well, it was Larry Hagman's first show, and he was so young. And, of course, the show is about he's an astronaut. He lands on this deserted island by mistake, and he comes across a bottle. And in the bottle is a genie, and the genie comes out and has to serve him. And it's just a silly a silly show that was on for five years in the 60s uh, that I grew up watching. And why, it was, why I tuned it on was just because I was reminiscing a little, right? There's an old show from my childhood. And during the middle of the show came a commercial for the show, Keeping Up with the Kardashians. Mm -hmm. And there was a line in the show from the narrator above the voiceover of the, all the action of the Kardashians and all their beauty and perfection saying, this could be the perfect family. Sorry, Fred, I almost wanted to throw up. Hmm. That is not the perfect family. That is the perfectly constructed family by the media that has seduced so many young people into believing that their bodies are not beautiful. Correct. BS, pardon my using that expression. I've used the real word, but BS. My wife loves my body. That's pretty weird, huh? And if you met my wife, I, I think you could probably, um, in my book, Fred, if you wanted to even show near the end, there's, let me show you. Give me, I can even look it up. It's right in, I got my book here too, Fred. I got copies of this thing all over the place. Let me just show the camera a picture of my little family and a picture of my wife, Darlene. There it is. Here I we think go. I'm here too. Yeah, that's right. There it is. Yeah. Well, you got it, Fred. Beautiful, now, beautiful family. That's Very a beautiful, beautiful family. family. Yeah. We all have beautiful families, Fred. We should stop judging the beauty of our family by their looks. Now, if you are blessed with looks, good for you. But if you happen to have a weight problem, or if you happen to have a skin problem, or if, like me, you lost your hair at an early age, why are we so worried about that? Well, because I believe we live in a very insecure world, and right now is making it so much worse. Yes. Because it's feeding that insecurity that people have about their lives. I was raised to believe there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. So that's why I worry so much about this idea of what it is that we represent in our society as to perfection. First of all, I don't think there's anything called perfection. Uh, but I do believe that we can strive for our own perfect, whatever that looks like. And I say this often with all due respect, not to uh, sound, uh, not to patronize you in any way, but you, you've accomplished 
more things than someone who was born without arms, right? I mean, you're, you're, you're an accomplished, you, you play more instruments than someone with, with arms and, uh, and a fully functional body, right? So which tells me that the limitations we have or, or we face are the limitations that we place on ourselves. And your life story, your, 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 your story goes to tell the whole world that it really matter what you look like, what you have, or what you don't have. I mean, we all created, and I, it's my faith, and I have to, I have to talk about this. God gives sure. all of us the ability to, and as long as we believe in it, as long as we can trust him to, to, to use us to the, to the fullest, we can do it. So yes, I do agree with you that some of these are self-limitations, self-imposed limitations that we place on ourselves, and we buy into the lie, we buy into the hype, we buy into the idealistic culture of what normal life should be. But you and many others are defying it day after day by showing the world that you don't have to look a certain way. You don't have to have, you know, all, all that we expect people to have, right? And you can do it because you believe in yourself, right? Well, you know what's interesting, Fred, is in my teams, and you know what we're going to do, just so the audience is, is uh, going to keep on watching, I'm not going to show it yet. I want your audience to stick around and watch this because near the end of this video, I'm going to actually play my little practice pad yeah. with my toes and a pair of drumsticks, but I'm not going to do it yet. It's like bait, Fred. You got to keep watching, right? right? You got to keep watching. Yeah. Hey, hey. There you go. Yeah, yeah. But, but that is actually how I became famous. I was living in, in this small town in Saskatchewan, and they happened to have a local television station. And I ended up on my first television show, I was tap dancing with, uh, I think it was five girls. And I'll always remember this, talk about dating myself here, Fred. I think it was around 1970, 70, 69, something like that. And, and I was on TV dancing. Boys in 1969 didn't tap dance, unless you were Sammy Davis Jr., right? <laughs> I didn't, that was, I got made fun of for tap dancing. And then I got on TV and all of a sudden, even in 1969, I was famous. It's amazing how people are so intrigued by fame. It, it totally intrigues me. But that wasn't what really changed my life. What changed my life was playing the drums. So I got to be known uh, around the community as having the ability to play drums. But what happened, which is in the book, by the way, you probably may have read it already. I was on a big telethon that yes. was on in 1977. And it was the first telethon ever in the little tiny province of Saskatchewan. And it was really amazing. There were people on that show that if your audience has any recollection of this, uh, uh, several people from the television show laugh in. So there were, there were Artie Johnson was there, Lyle Wagner from the Carol Burnett show was there. There was all these famous people that came to be part of the telethon in little Saskatchewan that I got to meet. I was in awe of these people. But I learned something that weekend, Fred, back in 1977. There were nine celebrities, and I'm not gonna say which ones because I accomplished nothing by disparaging people. Of the nine celebrities, I vividly remember at 16 years old, seven of them being very kind and generous, and two of them being absolute buttholes. They were just not nice people. And I remember thinking to myself, why are the seven over here like this and the two over here like this when they're all in the same fame game? I really learned that famous people doesn't make better people. 
That's right. That was huge for me. And it kept that in my head all the time that I have been growing as a human being to the point now where I'm a world-class speaker and everything. I'm always aware of how I treat people. I'm always aware of understanding that people would love to meet me. But most important, I'm always aware that just because someone has become famous doesn't make them a decent person. And yet we pay so much attention to celebrities who go on social media in particular to try to give their opinion about things, which is fine. It's their right. But why don't we listen to someone like you, Fred? You're just as important in the mix as anybody out there because you've also had life experiences that people could learn from. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, that's, and you, you talk about, um, and, and I want to, I want to dwell on that a little because you addressed this in the book because you're, you talk about when, you know, your, your mom took you a couple of weeks later um, to the hospital. This was during one of your routine appointments at the doctor's office. Uh, mom put you in the exam room, put you on the, on the bed and the doctor came in and, and the doctor said that you would never do anything, including sitting up. This was after uh, mom had tried putting you in the box and you, and you learned sitting up. Um, and doctor asked mom, what did you do? And mom said, I, I put him in the box. But again, these are the so-called experts, right? These are the experts who know everything, who have all the, all the, all the answers, who, who would believe. And rightfully so. We're not discouraging doctors or the experts in any way. but Especially not knows, right now. Exa exactly. Again... This goes to address some of the dangers of, and I talk about this in my upcoming book, being careful who you listen to, especially even oh. those who have well-meaning intentions, right? I mean, here's a doctor who told your mom that you couldn't do anything, and they could have believed this and taken whatever they said, you know, as gospel, and that would have stopped or prevented your mom from doing what she thought or what I believe God put in her to raise you, right, as a natural mother. How does that, how does that, apply to what we're going through today right and I've, I've had experiences like that from well-meaning people who have oh you know you don't want to do this and it's coming out of a place of love how do you distinguish between those voices right versus what has been placed in you by god i believe to do or to accomplish well first of all people don't give themselves enough credit for their gut instinct we can feel these things with people we can feel the genuine nature of a human being and by the way, I want to add that my mother was never disrespectful to these doctors with her words. She let her actions speak for themselves. Yes. You know, and I think what's fascinating is uh, just to fill in a, a slight blank for the audience to understand the story. The box, as we talk about, was actually a box that held mason jars because my mother canned everything. Remember that generation? Yes. I was about... We don't, I don't exactly remember how old I was, but I wasn't a year old yet. I was not able to sit up. You want to know why? Because I had too much weight in my head. Without the arms to balance my gravity, my head tended to tip me over. So mom would always watch me tip over. And then one day she was canning something. I was in the kitchen with her. She had this idea, put them in the box. Well, in the box, I couldn't tip over. So the more that I sat in the box, the more that I gained back strength, the more that my neck adjusted, I gained muscles there. My mother also used an old school thing that we don't seem to think is very safe anymore, the jolly jumper. You know, that device that you put a baby in and then yes. they're on a spring. That. That, that's how I developed strength in my legs. My point is this, that we need to listen to people who know more than we do. And one of the problems with the internet 
is that we go there to research material so we can learn. You mentioned to us, to me privately, that you learn a lot of how to do things on YouTube. I agree. YouTube's a great source of how to learn to do things. But for a doctor to graduate from medical school and practice medicine, they're not looking at YouTube for the answers to how to uh, operate on a heart mm -hmm. or, or any of those things. We need to put complete faith in the professionals in our communities. And I mean that of all professionals. Let me branch off to one that really bugs me, Fred. Why do people have such disrespect for law and order? Because we like to have control. And so anytime we, it feels like someone's trying to take control, we want to rebel, human nature, right? Yeah, and I, I agree that police officers have acted poorly in some circumstances. But doctors and police officers and politicians, they all have one thing in common. They're not all bad. They're not all bad. One bad apple, as they say, does what, Fred? Spoils the bunch. Yep. So we need to recognize with our gut when we're feeling whether we're being conned or taken in. And how we do that is by taking it upon ourselves to learn. If you know in my laws, you saw my Alvin's laws, there's five of them. The second one is learning. You know, so I wrote... Uh, just to prove to you that I'm paying attention, I have the page right here, and I'll yeah, read yeah. It and then I'll let you finish. It says, "Learning isn't just figuring it out the first time; it's about failing and failing a lot. It's also about not quitting when you fail. It's also about practicing." So I'm right there with you. Continue. I'm right with you on learning there. Well, let, let me actually. What I've got is I do have my book here, and I, I'm not a guy that that I call it a book flogger. That's not meant to be disrespectful to other speakers or people that love to flog their book. But when I wrote my laws, what I wrote them was, and, and you can see them, uh, you know, if you, when, you, when you show this, but, but I want to pick up my book and just hold it because I want to quote myself. Please I think this is a great time to quote myself. Yes. This cool. is what I wrote about, see, my, my laws are A-L-V-I-N. They're the five laws of life. And the L, they, by the way, spell my name Alvin. That was me trying to be clever. Anyway, the L stands for learning. So this is what I wrote. But Fred, I wrote this entire page the doctrine of my life in 17 minutes. And I didn't cheat. I'm gonna give your audience a, a little homework assignment. They need to write their own laws. But here's what I wrote about learning off the very gut instinct of my life. Learning is the greatest gift we give ourselves. It can transform us from nobody to somebody and is the great equalizer. To not learn as much as we can is to disrespect the gift of life. In learning, we must also ask questions. Well, that's good because people need to listen more and talk less. There is knowledge all around us. We just have to listen for the answer. I love this one. To listen is to learn and to learn is to grow. Isn't that why we're all born, Fred? Absolutely. That's Absolutely. what I think. I'd like to throw a monkey wrench in that, um, Alvin. Sure. Learning. I also believe that it's, it's important who you learn from. If this is a, one of the chapters I have in my upcoming book. I, I have a chapter called, be, be careful who you let into your inner circle. Yes, I believe in learning. I'm a lifelong learner. I like to learn. I like to read a lot. But isn't it also important, um, Alvin, who you learn from or who you listen to? Sure. And unfortunately for some people, we're forced into a situation, say our parents, for example. If we happen to be born into a bigoted home, into a misogynist home, into a racist home. We hear the lessons. I grew up in a home where my father was a veteran of World War II. So he had a very distasteful opinion 
of German people. How ironic that he married a German woman. <laughs> so what was fascinating for me was that he came from war, having battled in, in you know, that huge conflict against Germany, but it reminded him to not judge every German by the fact that we saw bad ones. I agree, it's hard. And what's really even harder, Fred, if I may add this, this is not a solution, but it's an observation. It's also unfortunate that some people end up getting into a classroom in a school that doesn't necessarily have the best teachers. Mm -hmm. And that's not disrespectful of educators, that's just a human comment. Some schools are in really bad neighborhoods. Some schools are really challenged by their demographics. Some schools are in small towns where nobody wants to go live. So maybe you've got a teacher that's been teaching for 45 years and still you know, brings up stuff from 45 years earlier that is their opinion. Absolutely. That's why one of the great exercises we can do, and this is gonna sound very self-serving, but I make no apologies. That's why we buy books. Yes. That's why we read books. That's why we go online and find information. But here's the killer. Boy, I'm glad you brought this up. The internet has become this incredibly unfortunate place where some people can sell their very poor ideas that people buy. I don't know whether that's just people not wanting to work hard to learn or if they're searching for affirmation of bad things. You know, I think of, you know, I hate to be inappropriate here, Fred, but one of the things that my wife and I are quite dedicated to is this idea of, of you know, how we treat children, mm. uh, especially the ones that take advantage of children, especially in the sex trade. You know, this terrible thing that is the undercurrent of our society that happens. We've been to Asia quite a bit. So we see what it's like over there. You know, the sex trade, all of that stuff, which is very uncomfortable as a topic. But I think what bothers me the most is we have the internet that almost affirms that those kind of bad habits are okay because there's a whole bunch of other people that do it. No, there's certain things we don't need the Bible to tell us what's wrong and right, Fred. We just need to trust our own instinct and our own morals and our own values, which really, I think, are very universal on planet Earth. I, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, we're, we're another one for your laws, which, which I think is, I mean, all of them, and I, I'd like to touch on all of them really before the show ends, but um, why don't we go off to the actual, the first one, which, which is attitude. And I, it goes without saying, right, attitude is everything, but you, you define attitude as something that's more than being positive. It's a way of looking at life. Ours and everybody's, in fact. It's said to be everything because it's everything. It defines who we are and what we become. And attitude, unfortunately, has become one of those things where uh, we're, we're, it's, 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 it's become more like a personality, right? And people actually gloat, you know, over even bad attitudes, right? It's, has attitude gone out of the window? Is it not important anymore, Alvin? I think we've actually become a tiny bit cynical about attitude, and it's a huge irony that we're having this conversation, Fred, because for some people, it's become a commodity. It's become a, a course. It's become a seminar. It's become a best-selling book. I mean, you know, you, you have a connection with John Maxwell. Now, that's a smart guy. That's somebody that actually knows more, in my opinion, than many out there. Um, I've gotten to know some pretty smart people in my life that are really, really credible. But I think the trouble is that we've almost made attitude a cliche of its own. Yeah, yeah, have a good attitude. Yeah, whatever. I think there's a lot of people right now that are feeling that. But if anything, right now is the time 
to search what our attitude is really all about. How are we getting along with others? How are we getting along with ourselves? I think mental health is actually a huge topic that you know I cover obviously all the time in my talks because I believe that attitude is definitely connected to mental health. But I also believe too that because it's become a bit of a cliche, we tend to think of it in the wrong way. So I call attitude a habit. So I wanna ask what your audience's habits are like. What are your habits right now? Are you, I mean, I'm not judging anybody because quite frankly, this is a great example of how we're all gonna respond to this time frame yes. in our own way, right? Yeah. Some people are depressed. Some people are intimidated. And let's be blunt, some people have a right to be because this is about income. This is about stability. This is about paying the rent and yeah. putting food on the table. And I can just hear the audience going, yeah, see, what is positive attitude gonna do about getting me a paycheck? It, it won't get you a paycheck, but it will get you through a time that you simply have to survive. And that's why I think a lot of times I talk about attitude also being something that is related to our ego. We must be humble as we can be, but I think a lot of people who meet me, especially online, think, my God, are you like that all the time? Well, no, of course not. I'm not like this when I'm sitting around the dinner table with my wife and son, but I am always like this in the context of always trying to see the positive. That's how I was raised. It became part of my habit. So when I would see a situation, I mean, there's another one that we've got down the line in my laws, but I look at a situation, I tend not to look at the obstacles because I've seen them. I know what they look like. I've been over obstacles. So the next one that comes along, this one's a little tricky right now because I'm not sure how we're gonna get over this one. And I have a theory about this. I don't think we're gonna get over it. And I'm not saying this is a test there's, a, there's some people out there that are saying this is a test from God. I, I'm not going to disrespect that. No, this is a sickness. This is a virus. This has nothing to do with God. This happened because that's how frail our human bodies are. Maybe it'll remind a few of us to not take our human bodies for granted. Mm -hmm. Maybe it'll remind a few of us because we're walking more than we ever have that maybe that's a good habit. Maybe we'll turn on the radio and listen to some music or a podcast versus turning on the Kardashians mm -hmm. to see what they're up to. Mm -hmm. Again, due respect. Maybe we'll start to value our children more, even though they're driving us crazy. Because mm -hmm. remember what I said at the beginning of the podcast, Fred? What are the two most powerful words? I am pregnant. pregnant. Yes. Well, there you go. So if you got pregnant and you got kids, well, whose fault is that? You can't blame the kids for driving you crazy. All you can do is try to adjust your attitude so everybody has harmony. Yeah. And, and again, I think it goes, it goes back to the perspective thing, right? I mean, for me, yes, is it comfortable? Not really. I mean, I've also gotten a few things that have been, that have been canceled. And am I happy about it? No. But what can I do about it? I've got to change the way I feel about it. I've got to change, there's a popular saying that it's not what happens to you, it's how you react. And I think attitude goes a very, very long way. Yes, do we, do, we, do we like what is happening? No, but what can we do about it? We can change your attitude. And again, not to minimize this because like you rightly said, Alvin, there are, there are livelihoods, there, there are lives that, that are being impacted, right? Jobs that are being lost, you know, the stock market's going crazy there. People, lives are being lost, people are dying. And so I think that we can't, we can't undermine that in any way. But for those of us who are thankful enough to be fortunate enough to be, to be alive, we got we to gotta change our, our attitude. And I think it goes right next to the next law, um, which, which talks about value. And you say, you say in here that value your life and spirit. Too many people live 
another V, which is that of a victim. And I think that's really what you're alluding to here. We're, we're, we're playing the victim card. Oh, poor me, you know, what's this going to happen? Are we all going to victimizing, right, ourselves? How, how important is that? Well, you know, and the rest of that quote, I'm not going to read it, but I, I can tell you what it basically says is that when people live the life of the victim, there's real victims. Let's not deny this. There's real victims. There's real people that have gone through terrible things that somebody has done to them. But the trouble is a lot of times victims get stuck in the spot where they got victimized. I'm not a psychologist, Fred. I want the audience to understand that. But I've observed a lot of people in my life, not only through my career, but just in my life, you know, because people tend to talk to me. They tend to believe that I know something that other people don't know. They could be right. But I've heard so many people tell me personally how they felt victimized by something. And I've asked them a very simple question. Have you got over it? No. This, look what happened to me. I hear you. When are you going to get over it? I'll probably never get over it. Well, here's, here's a blunt observation, Fred. And again, sorry if this sounds really, really out there and honest. The only person that can control where you sit in your chair is you. That's right. I love to use a metaphor. I'm, I'm, this is one of my favorite metaphors. When we're driving our car, and the audience needs to know that I also drive. That's just kind of fun to tell you. I steer with my right foot on the wheel and my left foot on the gas. That's how I drive I did, see, I did see that video, the one you did on yeah. the road where you're driving that nice BMW. Like, how is he doing that? Yeah, right foot on the wheel, left foot on the gas. And, and what I say that for is that's also about attitude. But to get back to this metaphor, when we're driving our car, and you don't have to be a car driver to understand this, you got to look out front window. You got to check your rear view mirror every now and then to make sure you know what's behind you. Check your side mirrors. Always know what's behind you. But if you all you do is look in the rear view mirror, you're going to run into something. Or you're going to run into somebody. Or you're going to hurt somebody else. So if you think about that metaphor, you always should look in the rear view mirror. I always look in my rear view mirror. I'm constantly reminded of what I went through, what I grew through, what I was challenged by. But I can't live there. Mm. I can only live today. And when I live today, then I not only reflect the true nature of who I am today, but here's the thing. Everybody has value. Everybody. That, that sounds like a really idealistic statement, but it's the way that I view the world. And it's why more people need to see their own value and realizing that, yes, never forget what puts you into an awkward position as a victim. But here's the thing. I've never once in my life, Fred, heard an answer to the question, why me? It doesn't exist. So if we're looking for a why me answer right now, we're not going to get one. What I love about right now, Fred, to be quite weird about this, is everybody's the same. Isn't that bizarre? I, I did a, I, I'm just going to tell you, I did a podcast with a gentleman in Australia just yesterday. There he is in his apartment in Sydney, bound into his place just the same as we are in Calgary, Canada, just the same as you are in your home. This is weird, isn't it? That everybody is experiencing the same thing. Who'd have thought we'd ever see something like this in our lifetime? You know, it's interesting because I, well, one of the examples, and again, not out of disrespect or anything, but this is, this is a virus that is impacting the world, right? The rich nations, the poor nations, it's impacting everyone equally. It's impacting the aristocrats. I'm not going to name any names, but if you've been watching the news, you know who I'm talking about. You know, important prime ministers, important celebrities, and, and the not-so-important ones, right? I mean, you know what I mean. But 
again, it's no respecter of persons. We're all the same. We're all subject to whether you're rich or poor, black or white, you know, regardless of ethnic background, this is something that is impacting all of us the same. What does that teach us? Well, here's one that's going to sound a little bit wicked and vicious and mean, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm wondering how many people out there that may even watch this are a little bit frustrated. They can't buy themselves out of this. Mm. You can't. You, even if you have a billion dollars, you can't buy yourself out of this. Not that there's anything wrong with money, Fred, because I got to tell you, I like success. I've worked hard to earn a good income. I've got a beautiful home. I drive a couple of very nice vehicles, not at the same time. But the fact of the matter is, money can be the evil as well. That's where I've seen a lot of people, especially celebrities, that are not genuinely kind. You know, I, I'll tell you very quickly, I got a chance, people may recognize this name. I don't want to, I want to shout out to this guy named Ryan Reynolds. Ryan Reynolds is one of the major actors in Hollywood right now, but he's also Canadian. I don't know if people know that. Ryan Reynolds, you know, did the big movies. That, that, what's that one where he's doing, where he's infected and he goes around? It's just that crazy movie that he's in. But all the movies that he's done, one of the things that he did, the first thing he did was he donated a million dollars to food banks in Canada as soon as the outbreak happened three weeks ago. That's a lot of money, Fred. And that's a generous spirit. So I would say to a person like Ryan, thank you for being not what most people think celebrities are. Look what Bill Gates is doing with his money now, trying to come up with a vaccine. There's a genuine character, that one. And I think this is a really good time for people that happen to live with money. Yes. Instead of trying to figure out how they can buy themselves out of living in their house, how can they donate some of that money to help the less fortunate? Mm -hmm. I grew up being a giver, Fred. That's why I did the telethons. It's why I was always involved in fundraising, still to this day, because my parents taught me a valuable lesson by their actions. When my own birth family didn't want me, the law family took me home. Who does that? Well, people of genuine character and concern for the better of our planet. I think that's what we're learning right now, Fred, is we can treat this planet better. We can be better people. And if there is anything that we come out of this with that's that, then we've then we've we've gotten a gift out of this tragedy. And speaking of generosity, I want to just take this moment to, to thank you for what you're doing right now, Alvin. I mean, your your time right now, you're spending, you're giving me an hour of your time, which I know is worth tens of thousands of dollars. But you're you're giving this time to share your experiences with 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 the audience, with everyone really who's watching. And I want to say thank you because you could have refused, right? And 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 not not done this and kept everything yourself, but what you're doing right now, giving away your time, your money, and everything else, I, I really appreciate you for it. Thanks, Fred. That means a lot to me. And by the way, that's not a difficult decision for me to make. Thank you for bringing this up. Actually, I want to respond for just a second, too. This is not me and my ego wanting to get on a podcast or a broadcast or a webinar or a seminar. It's not why I do what I do on stage as a living. It's not why I write my book and write another book is coming up. It's, it's, it's my trade craft, but it's also the nature of me being a human. I thank you for acknowledging that because our, all of our times are valuable. I think that's what we have to understand is that now that we've got nothing else to do, we're starting to maybe reevaluate how valuable our own personal time is. You know, we've actually maybe missed what we should have learned from the millennials. And that is, you know, we, millennials are always getting crapped on by society. And by the way, millennials, stop saying okay boomer because okay, i'm real boomer. tired of that <laughs> but the fact of the matter is millennials my son's a perfect example 
he's kind of got it figured out. He doesn't live to work. He works to live. Mm. But the rest of his life is not about employment. The rest of his life is about his cat. It's about his friends. It's about his activities. My generation, your generation, our parents' generation, they worked, what did they say? So we could have a better life. Thank you, mom and dad, for working so hard to give us a better life. But at the same time, what was wrong with your life? Here's a, here's a factoid, Fred, just for fun. One of the most compelling factors in young people not going into blue collar labor is their parents, especially people of, from unions. Because unions, people are a member of unions, I'm generalizing now, but they would say to their kid, for example, hypothetically, son, daughter, you can do better than I did. You don't need to be a plumber. Mm. You don't need to be a mechanic. You don't need to be a bus driver. Well, my God, who are we depending on the most right now in our society? Mm -hmm. All the people that have those jobs that nobody wanted to ever have, well, now look what we're up to. That's what I was raised in. I was raised in a blue collar home where my father was nothing but proud of his job as a mechanic and service manager for a truck and tractor dealership. He was never embarrassed. He never told me to not do what he did, but practicality kicked in. I couldn't really work on an engine without having hands, right? So I found what I could do, and that's use my voice. So my voice has become my belief that I can use this to express not just my opinions, but the energy of belief that we just have to let our kids be who they want to be. That, that, that is a lesson. And I, it reminds me of um, my, my own daughter, because I think we're, we're going to the schools and uh, her school, in fact, for a meeting. And one of the, not sure whether he was a, a kitchen staff or, or a janitor, came to us to, to, to commend our daughter for stopping every time when she sees him to say hello. And he was so touched <laughs> by that because there are several, maybe 90% of those kids who would normally just walk by him. And I'm not saying this to put my daughter up on any pedestal, but I think it, it, it brings my mind to, and another point that you make in your book about janitors, because it was a janitor in, that you mentioned in your book. And I think you, you absolutely, you said that, you know, we, we gotta, these are some of the most important, we gotta love them. We gotta say thank you to them every time we see them, right? And it's true. I think we're all guilty at one point, you know, or the other, where we, we look down on people because, again, they're not, you know, up there the way where they're supposed to be. But these are these are human beings too. And and to hear that comment from this man in the school about you know how respectful our daughter uh, is to him was was very touching and humbling. You should be very proud of that, Fred. And I wouldn't be embarrassed to talk about it at all. It's a wonderful statement about your daughter. It's a wonderful lesson for life for people. How do we treat those people? I mean, man, I've seen it all the time. Here we go again, picking on the rich folks. I'm not picking on the rich folks, but I've seen a lot of people that believe they uh, have a right to their wealth. We talk about this word, Fred. We've heard about this word. It's a scary word. It has a lot of conjecture attached to it, and it's the word entitlement. Mm. The word entitlement is a huge subject. I'm not sure if you're covering it in your book or not, but I think it's a it's a key element of what we need to talk about with our kids. Let me, let me give you a really good example uh, from the book. I'm not gonna read the book, but as you probably read in the book, I was not supposed to go to a regular school. Yes. I think we talked about that in the last interview on the audio. I don't wanna repeat the story, but the fact of the matter is because I was the first disabled student 
to go to regular school in my community's history, not only did it become a really big deal, and there's two parts to this story, but what it also made me understand, I hope your audience is ready for this, education is not a right. It's a privilege. Having a roof over your head is not a right. It's a privilege. Having food on your table, a privilege. Having friends and family and a job, a privilege. I don't know if it's just American, because I don't think it is, but in Canada, we literally have a different constitution. It doesn't have words like your constitution does. And by the way, I'm not criticizing, but I'm saying when that becomes a fabric of a nation where everything you believe is you have a right, well, I got a problem with that because I have a different point of view. I believe in the privilege. So I don't have a viewpoint that entitlement should be part of my child's life. Right now, he's working in a factory when he's actually trained to be what's called a power engineer. Power engineer is, if people want a little funny line, is what Homer Simpson does on The Simpsons. Mm. He sits in a booth and he runs a nuclear plant. He's actually a power engineer. My son, although not quite there yet, could run a similar plant. But he lost his job because of all of the politics of the environment and the pipeline that was supposed to go through Nebraska that was called the Trans-Canada Pipeline because of the environmental concerns. By the way, I love the environment, but I also love my son. But more than anything, my son has proven to me he doesn't believe in entitlement either. So he found a job in a factory way below his pay grade, and he still works there to this day. I'm proud of my son because my son didn't look for a handout. Nothing wrong with that. My son didn't look for where's mine. Nothing wrong with that. But I think that's a big difference in the way that we teach our kids to live their lives, to earn it not just to expect it to be delivered by Amazon. Thank you. That makes me feel better about, about, <laughs> about, about what my daughter did uh, or the respect that he showed to this. Absolutely. <laughs> Two more laws very quickly, uh, Alvin, and we're gonna end this, I promise, but uh, perhaps you don't have to go into as much detail, but the, the, the next one here is imagination. And you say, imagination is a key that unlocks the power of potential. It is not owned by the young, but they are the best at using it. It defines the difference between obstacles and possibilities. Imagination, imagination leads to dreams, and dreams make life worth living. Dreams can come true. This I know. So when I sat in that box when I was a little boy learning how to sit up, and I don't even have a memory of this, when I got a little bit older, there was this corkscrew we had, because my mom and dad did like really bad wine. <laughs> there was a corkscrew that was shaped like a steering wheel and I would put it into the box in front of my box and I would drive my little box it didn't go anywhere but I could go anywhere in the world I could fly yes. with it I could go to the moon with it I could go to the corner store with it I could go to my friend's place with it I had an active imagination when I was a child as do all children that doesn't go away Fred we've still got that in our heads no matter how old we are Mm. Let's imagine our way out of this problem. Let's imagine a solution to our problems. Yeah. Let's imagine a way out of our challenges. Because human beings think that kids are the only ones with imagination. No, my friend, we've all got it. All we have to do is bring it out in us and more than anything, realize that we could be much better people by imagining ourselves for that simple reason, just to be better people. Very well said. And the very last one here, 
and then we'll we'll let you loose to do whatever you want to do with the drums here. But yeah, it, it talks about never give up. And I, it's again, this one almost sounds like a cliche, but we're we're in some challenging times globally. We are, and we we talked about this a couple of times in Europe. But it says easy to say, hard to do. The biggest enemy we will ever encounter every time we look in a mirror. Yet mirrors do not reflect who we are. Our lives do. Never give up. And, and, and I'll let you end that and maybe share, tell, tell our audiences who may be hurting someone who may be going through maybe some very challenging times about not, not giving up. I mean, from, from, from someone who never giving up, I mean, you had every reason to, right, from the time you were born up until now. You had every reason to give up, but you never did. So I'll let, I'll let that lesson come from you. You've earned so these are these are uh, pretty well-worn drumsticks, Fred. I'm uh, I'm kind of funny that way. I like to have old drumsticks because they're less slippery and they don't fall out of my toes as easily. Anybody who's a drummer watching this right now is going to see something that is theoretically impossible. Okay, this is a fact, not hyperbole, not exaggeration. It is theoretically impossible to put a pair of sticks between your toes. do what I just did. Mm. How could I do that? Because I'm amazing or I'm incredible. You know what, Fred, you've met me now and you get to know me. I'm just Alvin. Yes. And when I say never give up, it's not a cliche. It is the ultimate reflection of our attitude. How do we do that? Fred, everybody watching this right now has been through something in their life. You cannot get through being a human without having obstacles. How did you get through them? How did you get over them? Do you see something that happened to you 20 years ago that you thought was gonna finish you as just a bump in your road? Well, that's how I see everything in life, Fred. Everything is just a little bump in the road. I actually find this fascinating. I think right now in this virus is gonna just be a bump in the road. Yes. It doesn't feel like it right now, but I was also in New York a month after 9-11. Did we ever think as a country, in your case as America, you would ever recover from 9-11? Yeah. Well, you did. And you are amazing. You are. When, when Trump said, make America great again, here's my response. There was nothing wrong with America in the first place. It's got flaws. So does Canada. So does everywhere. All I know is if we focus on the flaws, we get more flaws. If we focus on the end product being perfect, we may never get there either. But we have to focus on the positivity. Because positivity creates an energy in our bodies. A healing energy. An energy that gives us a belief that we can do anything. Every morning when I get up, Fred, I have a little plaque in my bathroom and it says this. I'm not afraid of tomorrow, for I have seen yesterday and I love today. Mm. So I would encourage your audience and your viewers to write their own laws. Look up alvinlaw.com. You can see them out there. They're easy to view. But write something of your own personal mission statement of your life. And don't work on it for five days. Ask yourself the question, what defines you? What makes you who you are? And what is your value system? Write that down on a piece of paper and put it next to your bed. Tape it right to the wall. And the first thing you see when you wake up in the morning is a positive reminder that life is good, even though it may not feel like that right now. Wow. Alvin, thank you so much. And you, you, the last question there, what defines you, happens to be the very first chapter of my upcoming book. And the book is comprised of um, 18 chapters. And every one of those 18 chapters, you'll get to read it. I'll send it to you. 
I can't uh, wait. There's a question. And the very first one there is what defines you? And I think this is a question that we want to end uh, on to ask really close to all of our audience. What defines you? Is it what you're going through? Or is it, is it who you're made up of? And like Alvin said, it really doesn't matter how hard this, and again, we're not saying this to minimize this, but we will get through this. This too shall pass. So whoever's watching, no matter how down in, in the dumps you are, please keep hope alive, keep faith alive. This too shall pass. Alvin, thank you so much again for coming on this special edition of Time with Fred and showing us those, those skills there. We really appreciate you again to thank you. Thank you for, first of all, who you, your gift to the world, your gift to humanity, your gift of bringing hope to the world. We can't undermine that. Thank you for not allowing the limitations around your breath to stop you. Thank you for not listening to the experts. Thank you for giving of who you are so that me and everybody else watching can benefit. My friend, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming in on the show tonight. Well, God bless you back at you, my brother. And here's one last line. I just heard it on the news up in Canada yesterday from an announcer, our national news announcer said, we are in this alone together. That's life, brother. We're all in this alone together. together. All the best, man. Thumbs up, toes thank up. You. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. God bless you, my friend. Talk to you soon. God bless you too, my right. brother. See you again. Bye. Bye. Bye.